Hey, honestly, Debbie, let's pause once again, if you will. I know that this is a different time of the year, but like all of these kids, let me just be honest with you, Hannah, between you and I, everyone turn your ears off. My kids tonight said, like, do we have to go to church? They asked that question. And we had actually a really good conversation about like the habitual rhythms of saying yes to things that might not be like what you are inclined to naturally, but are better for your growth and your your fruitfulness, and it didn't go very far, but I thought it would go further. It is what it is, but what I, what I want to say and re-double re, uh, down on what Debbie first said, it's that car crash of a start. I thought I had higher aspirations from where we are, is that kids matter. We have a lot of new kids that have come into our program, come into our church. I can see you clenching your teeth right now. Not sure of how this is, I'm looking at you, yes. Not sure how this is all going to unfold. But kids do matter. We've had a plethora of kids come in under the guardianship of their parents who are trying to figure out what does it mean to be a follower of the Christ in these divisive times, which coincidentally is what we as adults are trying to figure out as well. As Debbie noted, we are starting a sermon series tonight called Dancing in the Darkness, spiritual lessons for thriving in turbulent times like these. Before we get into all that is being offered up inside of this book, I want to say the same thing that we say at the beginning of every moment that is sermonic in this nature. Hear this if you hear nothing else. Some of the stuff that we offer up from this pulpit here tonight might be not for your benefit. You might like hear it. It might make you like tickle your emotional armpits or something like that, but it's not going to actually like have lasting fruitfulness. But hear this at least. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Honest to God, between you and I, why we gather as a church, as we set on these different aspirations, we're trying to make these aspirations evolve into activation as a community. The number one thing I want people, whether you've been a long time member at the table or this is your first time coming through, I hope you remember that you're a person that who you are is more important than what you do. Even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Everything that we do and that we aspire towards is based off of that core belief. And so we want to remind you of that every time you step into this space. Now we are going into that space right there, dancing in the darkness. Let me intro the series like this. Otis Moss III, he has been, um, I don't know what the criteria was being registered by the BBC when they did this, but he's known as one of the greatest top 20, I believe, number 12, if you want to be exact, spiritual orators of our time. Preachers, somebody who knows how to communicate the core beliefs of what it means to be human in this space. He is a civil rights leader. He's born of civil rights parents. His parents both worked for the SCLC. They were married by Dr. King himself. He performed the nuptials at their arrangement. But he has this book that offers profound wisdom for the space that we are in as you and I both try to embody and occupy the yet-to-be United States of America. And so please hear the origins of Dr. Moss's book from Dr. Moss himself. Patty, play that video. As I remember in 2008, when there was a gentleman in our congregation at Trinity United Church of Christ who was running for president, a senator by the name of Barack Obama, who eventually became president and now is in retirement, 
as president, uh, but when he was running for president in that moment, uh, there's something happened in our church. I remember I was at, I believe it was, uh, at the time it was called Bally's uh, Fitness. I was on a treadmill and someone tapped me on the shoulder. I was doing my warm down, Ed, and someone said, is that your church on the news? And I looked up and I saw Sean Hannity just going off. And I said, well, I guess I got to leave right now. And at that moment, over 40 outlets were showing up every Sunday because they took a piece of my predecessor's message out of context and blasted it all over conservative radio and television. 40 outlets every Sunday. But then the death threats began. That we had letters that we would receive every day from my predecessor, Dr. Jeremiah Wright Jr., myself, and the church. We had to have bomb-sniffing dogs show up every time we had any type of event. We had to uh, hire new security. I had my own personal security that had to follow me everywhere. It got on my nerves everywhere I went. I was like, can I go in here by myself? Nope. I was like, okay, I've got to go wherever you go. So the security was with us consistently, and it does something to your spirit when you're consistently looking over your shoulder, wondering if this person walking up to you is friend or foe. And one night, uh, I was trying to sleep, and that is uh, the operative word, trying, because I did not get much sleep during that time period, uh, maybe an hour and a half to two hours. And we heard something in the house, and Monica tapped me on my shoulder and said, you need to go check that out. And I grabbed my rod and my staff that comforts me. <laughs> it's from Louisville. It's a Louisville slugger. So there I was walking around the house, trying to figure out what this noise was. Also wondering, is this the moment? Is this it? After all of the letters, all of the emails, all of the people who had been showing up, was this the moment that someone, some crazed individual who had been listening to conservative radio made the decision that they were going to take out an individual? And so I looked around the house. I heard the noise again, the noise coming from my daughter's bedroom. And then I go into my daughter's bedroom, and there is my baby girl, all of five years old. She is in the middle of her room, and she's spinning and dancing. She says, look, Daddy, I'm dancing pigtails just spinning back and forth, and I say in my fatherly voice, because I had to preach in several hours, it was 3 a.m., I said, baby, you need to go to bed. But she kept saying, look, daddy, I'm dancing. And then at that moment, the spirit said, stop and listen. Look at your daughter. Your daughter is dancing in the darkness. The darkness is around her, but the darkness is not in her. And in that moment, I scrapped my sermon for Sunday, ran down to the study, and then began to write uh, what was moving in my spirit. And when I stood into the pulpit on that day, I stood before the congregation and told them that we are called to dance in the darkness. Just like little Michaela, the darkness may be around us, but it is not in us. 
And if we are to see transformation in this fragile democracy, we must dance, dance with love plus justice, dance with compassion and joy, dance with forgiveness and grace and mercy. And if by chance we learn how to dance, we will see transformation in this democracy we call the yet to be United States of America. Let us learn how to dance in the darkness. But through this, these next three months, that is the origin right there. Learning how to dance in the darkness of these yet-to-be United States of America as we learn our roles both as privatized individuals but as a collective whole. How do we be people who, have good, who aspire towards good news but don't leave it at aspiration alone. We move it towards activation. We don't leave it as these thoughts that we express. We move it to these thoughts that we embody. How do we learn how to dance in the darkness? It's funny, you know, Dr. Moss, him and I had a chance to connect when he is, he, he like lends his time as one of the chaplains for the Chicago Bulls. And for whatever reason, he was on a road trip with the Bulls and he met me at the Target Center where I serve as the chaplain for the Wolves. And I started to ask questions about like, why don't the wolves invo involve me on like uh, road trips, you know, but they, they have yet to do so. That wasn't the point of the conversation. Um, but one of the things I asked him while I had this space with him was, what is your role right now? You know, I know you took the reins after Jeremiah Wright took the heat. I know you came in the wake of a lot of catastrophe, a lot of people coming at you, the world caving in, Sean Hannity going off about y'all. What is your role right now? And one of the texts that he brought me to, like any good pastor would bring me to, was Luke 1, where he says, you know, there's something about this dad named Zechariah. He said, there is this guy named Zechariah who has a son. And no, it's not the Christmas story. It's not Jesus himself, but it is the one who comes before the crisis, a man named John. And Zechariah is in the temple proclaiming the good news, the good gift of a new baby boy that has arrived in his presence. And he sings his praises and he expresses his gratitude and goes on and on about, thank you, Lord, for providing me with this baby boy. Grateful, top to bottom, grateful. And then he turns to his kid. And he looks at his son and he says, and you, my child, every parent in this room, you know the weight of those moments right there where you look at your kid and you go, you. This is not some reprimand. This is not some behavioral correctionary act that I'm doing. I'm just you. For me, it's you, Wyatt, you, Sawyer, you, Graham. Let me tell you something about who you are. And you, baby boy John, you're going to be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, by tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light and this is where Reverend Dr. Moss was pointing me towards, to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And I said, thank you, Moss, for Luke 1. I appreciate that very much. Tell me more what you're trying to say. 
And he said, well, I'll tell you this, eight different times in the Gospels alone, when we talk about the darkness, we simultaneously are talking about those who are sitting inside of it. Those who have been restricted to this posture of receptivity, but not proactivity. Those who have been restricted not to standing up, but to sitting down. It is what it is. Not what will it be, not what could I do for the sake of what may should be. They're sitting in the darkness, inside the shadow of death. Eight different times, the scriptures alone, in the New Testament alone, go on to say that. If you, told, if you were to actually lay out the totality of the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish uh, roots that the Christian tradition comes out of, it goes beyond eight. So many times, the darkness that is named is attached to people who respond with this sense of, Hands up, let's wait it out. By and by, at some point, the dawn will break, but I have no say in the matter. Zechariah, dad, Reverend Dr. Moss says, he tells his son out of the gates that you are the one who is supposed to go to those who are seating on chairs of receptivity and tell them it's time to be proactive. It's time to wake up. This is not a time for sitting back and receiving the world as it is. You are a thermostat, not a thermometer. You set the terms for engagement. If the world isn't the way that it's supposed to be, do something about it. What is your role to play in this moment? Are you passively restricted to this posture alone? Or are you being called into action? 1958, Dr. King. He's in a church in Chicago at the peak of all kinds of darkness. The Vietnam War is at its worst. Reporters are starting to report on how it is exploiting particularly the people of color and the poor. Um, there is an economic crisis that is spreading throughout the land. There is race riots breaking out in Detroit. And Dr. King steps in a pulpit before the city of Chicago. With every reporter in the room, cameras all turned on. What do you have to say to us? His first word is about the darkness. He says that we are in a moment that is akin to midnight in America. Everybody that should be awake is fast asleep. Everybody that should be responding to the crisis at hand, they're instead taking care of their own comfortable needs. He calls on a text that Christ first put forth in Luke 11, and the text reads like this. Jesus says, after somebody asks him, uh, you know, teacher, rabbi, how are we supposed to pray? He gives him the Lord's Prayer, and then he says, listen, suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight, and you say to him, friend, lend me some of the uh, three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within. Please don't bother me. It's midnight. The door has already been locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't just get up and give you anything, let alone three loaves of bread. Pause right there. Do you see the comedic edge that Christ is employing in this moment? That man just used as a sincere excuse for not answering the door of the needy that is knocking on the door at that time. Listen, hey, Aaron, the door's locked. 
What am I supposed to do? Unlock it? Do you, do you hear it? So many of us are like robotically trained to like receive the words of Christ in the Gospels as they're presented as like these absent of human emotion or human relationships with the community itself. But Christ is saying, do you hear how ludicrous that actually is? The door is locked and so I can't unlock it. Do you hear that? But also, do you hear, like, when you hear other people responding to injustices knocking on the doors of churches across our country, and they say, well, listen, maybe if you use a better tone of voice, or you chose her words more carefully, I'd be more akin to open the door. But since you said what you said, and I am who I am, I just can't open the door. The door is locked. Maybe if you, if you actually like, you took account of the whole scene and not just your emotional disposition, I might open the door. I might crack it open and offer you something. I can see you have an empty stomach and you're, you're, I can hear it growling from within. But like, you did what you did and so I am where I am. And then he follows it up with him saying, and, and furthermore, my kids are asleep. Dad point number two. The things that I prioritize the most, I protect the most. My kids need sleep. And for me, that's more important than you needing to eat. My family needs protection. That's more important than justice being rendered throughout the land. I have a schedule that I need to keep. It's consistent, congruent with my family at hand, and I would love to help y'all. I would love to offer my service. I'd love to step in and intervene and advocate in whatever way I could. But my kids are asleep. The door is locked. What actually can I do? Pay attention when you read the scriptures and you move slowly through these stories. When Jesus says these things, you ought to go like, wait, your door's locked, man. Your kids are asleep. This man hasn't ate in three days. You have an empty stomach at your door and you're not doing anything about it. Yes, it's at midnight. Yes, it's dark outside. But what is your role for those of you who claim the Christian tradition, which is supposed to follow the son of love? We, I told somebody last night at a grab party, I was there with these guys, they asked, like, what are your summer plans for the table of Minneapolis? And I said, well, we're going through a book by Otis Moss III. It's called Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. And the guy said to me, he's like, so y'all a uh, social justice church? It's a straight-faced question, so I didn't answer in this sassy of a way, but if I was rude i would have said some like social justice church is that the same way of walking into byerly's and going like is this one of those food groceries walking into the hennepin county library and going like is this a book library to follow the christ is to subscribe to the tradition of the christ to subscribe to the the teachings of the christ and say how do i live my life in a way that is most congruent most catalytic most faithful to the tradition of embodying how do I love my neighbor as myself right here, right now, period? Attach no religious affiliation, inclination to it. How do I love the people I encounter with right now? If you have a caveat attached to that, you're off. 
If you have some excuse, my door is locked, my kids are asleep, you're off. 1958, Dr. King stood before that pulpit and he preached this text and he called it a knock at America's midnight. The door is banging with bloody knuckles saying, wake up. It's time to get out of bed. I'm not asking you to forfeit the care of your kids. I'm asking you to care for your neighbor as well. I heard what you said on Sunday in that church. Be about the aspirations that you proclaimed a couple days back and live it out right now. (laughs) Jesus, when he lays out this parable, you know what he says about the man who's knocking at the door. It's beautiful. Pat, you put up the, the second part of I tell you, the knocker at the door, even though that man inside, America inside, the white Christian church inside will not get up and give him anything, even though he's got some kind of relationship with him, even though they have a previous, some kind of agreement going forward, even, but even if it's not, at least because of your, your persistence, Your refusal to stop knocking. You said I have a need. You have a resource. Do something about it. If that's the grounds alone, if there's no prior relationship before, then I promise you he's going to get out of bed. In other words, Jesus is saying, keep banging. Keep knocking. Keep making your need be known. And so as a church right now, we are in that place right now. We're we're joining Dr. King. We're joining Dr. Moss. And we're saying that we need to move away from abstract spiritual aspirations to actually lived embodied activation. We're trying to move from that place where we're saying this was what what should be. Let's turn the dial and say what needs to be. How do we live in a different way? You don't do that reactively. You don't do that from that posture of sitting in the darkness. You stand to your feet and you say, where am I, Lord? What's around me, Lord? And what do I have to do about it? One of the responses to that present question of our times is is to say that I'm going to get with the beloved community around me. That is, look to your neighbor. That's this. The people that you join with on Sunday afternoons and you say, how do I actually respond? Not shrug my shoulders. Not like dismiss. Because that is the tendency of the darkness around us, right? Is that we have a choice where it's like, how do we respond to it? For me, I'm talking to my kids last night. We're going all lights out in the room, lamp too. Because a lot of different things come up in the dark. A lot of fictitious like beings come up in the dark. You know how much like hours I spent worrying about the Bermuda Triangle and quicksand that had no bearings on my actual life? Yeah, quicksand, Sam. But the things that we come up with in the dark, your neighbor will say that's not true. Here's what is true. Get online with us. And so my encouragement, this is an extended announcement from what Debbie previously said, is that join a book group. Take seriously this opportunity, this invitation. We're taking the summer, three months, before we get into the next full swing of the year. We're going to say there is a knock at our door. 
Not only can we answer it, but can we have some freshly baked bread? Can we have something that is ready to serve, ready to nourish the world around us? Because if not, we don't actually deserve existing. If we have nothing to say to the neighbors around us, we don't deserve existing. Christ, God, you are grateful, God. We are grateful for this opportunity to dive into Dr. Reverend Overdismas III's book, Dancing in the Darkness, Lord. Help us to not only learn these things, but live these things, God. Give us the courage and the conviction to be about your ways, to create and cultivate the beloved community in this time and this space with all the turbulence at hand. God, you are good. And God, we are grateful. In Jesus' name, all God's children say, Amen. I think one of the questions that I'm left with is uh, trying to identify what the knock at the, at my door is. And I wonder if you guys are having the same thoughts that I'm having. Um, I've got four kids, and I think the knock at my door right now is um, is their school. And I think the question in where we live in Minneapolis is um, where's where, where do kids deserve to go to school? What kind of school do they deserve to go to? What kind of school do my kids deserve to go to? And if my kids, my kids are in bed, they're in good school. But not everybody is. So what's the knock at my door? These are the things that are percolating in my head tonight. And I wonder, what's the knock at yours? And I think one of the things that I am looking forward to this summer is being in community enough to say, um, you know, to friends, what, what's the knock at yours? Let me tell you about the knock at mine. And can we get creative together to, to ask the hard questions and say, okay, where is, where does Jesus, where's Jesus inviting us into? Where is Jesus inviting us to, to step boldly and bravely and, and to tear down walls and open doors and let the light in? So in this portion of our services, where we transition into uh, communion together, and this is something that we do every week, it is a pattern that we root ourselves around. It's where we remind each other and we remember ourselves as members of one body. And so uh, we come together and we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his community and he had a really simple knock at the door moment with them because he said to them, this is my body. It's broken for you and for everyone else as well. And that was a really radical idea at the time. And in the same way, he poured wine into the cup and he gave thanks to his father. And he told his friends, this is, this is my blood. It's shed for all for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup, remember that I am coming back. Remember me till I come again. And our way here at the table during the next worship set we invite you to come make one line right here down the middle. You'll come to the front where we'll have communion servers. You'll take a piece of bread. It's all gluten-free. And you'll hear the words, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then you'll dip it into the cup and eat it and hear those words, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. So um, before we get to that, would you stand with me together? We're going to say the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to say, saying, our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Lay down your burdens, lay 
down your shame all who are broken lift up your face oh So lay down your hurt, lay down your heart, come as you are. <laughs> <laughs>